Hey. How's New York? It's uh it's been interesting. So uh I've taken a the seven train uh out from Manhattan where I was staying near the conference center and uh made it across Manhattan, made it over the the river and now I'm over here in Queens in a little uh intense little notable for its walkability and its uh very active main street, uh a little uh, neighborhood called Flushing. Uh it's also what, what are you doing in Flushing? So I I needed to get out of Manhattan because I had been to Manhattan and you know there's a lot of Manhattan to see but I also uh wanted to see New York for other things other than Manhattan and the craziness of Manhattan because that is so far beyond any kind of urbanism that uh I'm likely to uh engage with uh from a design standpoint in my life that uh, I wanted to see the New York that was less intense the the less crazy uh megatropolis of uh Manhattan so I decided to take in Queens and maybe I'll get over to Brooklyn tonight as well Did, did you say you were in a laundromat earlier? I am in a laundromat. Why are you in a laundromat? Cuz I hate dragging around dirty clothes. You're going to wash before you come back. That's actually a great idea. And I had a little bit of time to kill before my Airbnb uh, allows me to check in. Actually, that's so. Yesterday, we recorded our episode with some guests. How yeah. was that? I, I got to record over the phone. Um, <laughs> I was sitting in my car in yeah. a park. How, so, how was that on your side? Where were you guys? We actually made it back to my hotel room, uh, not too far from the conference center. So this is like part of New York that's like really built up and tall. Yeah, it's super tall and, and getting taller. Like there's a lot of construction going on in that area too. Uh, that's cool. What there. floor were you guys on? I was on the second floor all the way up there. You the come, second you, floor? You come to New York City <laughs> to stay on the second floor. <laughs> so you had a beautiful view yeah. of a roof. Yeah. So we, we recorded yesterday. We had two great people that we're going to check in with in just a second, and uh, not so live from New York, it's Main Street Mesa. <laughs> I, I think that's it. I think that's what we use. All right. Very good. We have two outstanding guests with us today, and we're so lucky to have been brought together thanks to the American Planning Association's National Planning Conference of 2017 here in New York City. So we love being here, and we love the atmosphere here in uh, Manhattan. And if you can't hear that, that's sirens outside the window. So that's just part of the, the lovely atmosphere here in New York. But joining me is Andrea and Ivis, and so uh, just getting to know Ivis, but uh, I know Andrea from a little bit ways back in, in ASU. So go ahead and give us a, a little brief introduction to why you uh, are interested in planning or, or uh, what you've contributed thus far. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Ryan and David. It's great to be here. Um, and uh, well, you know, I have an. Um, I grew up with a, a father who was an architect, and I started paying attention to the places and spaces around me since I was a little kid. I would say a real 
a very memorable event was going to Mexico when I was a little kid and seeing um, seeing the courtyard building, seeing um, seeing the way the cities were made, and it has stuck with me ever since. And I've been very intrigued about the built environment since that trip, since I was nine. So looking at cities and comparing them across cultures, and that's a big part of why I'm doing this. Very cool. And fast forward to today. Today I'm um, I'm uh, uh, doctoral candidate at the University of Utah. Uh, having gotten my Master's of Urban Environmental Planning at Arizona State University. I lived in Mesa, Arizona for six years, and I am looking at uh, the way planners plan for minority communities and, and how they think about um, the, the many publics that they plan for. Very cool. So yes, definitely Mesa experience. That's going to be very helpful, and so it's good. And my name is Ibisam Garcia. I'm originally from, from Puerto Rico. I didn't know about planning until I moved to the United States. I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there I work um, with uh, the Navajo community in an environmental um, planning project. Um, and this is how I learned what planning did and what captivated me was like this idea of like working close with communities to be able to solve um, the issues that they um, care about. So that's um, why I ended up going to a master's in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico. I worked in several places in the United States, um, the San Francisco uh, Bay Area, and um, being, being one of them. Then I moved to Chicago to do my PhD, and now I am in Salt Lake City as an assistant professor in urban planning. Awesome. That's, uh, so we are very honored to have such great minds around the table to talk about Jeff Speck's Walkable Cities, Steps 2, which is Mix the Uses, and 3, Getting Parking Right. Um, so, David, do you have any, uh, any starting points that you want to bring up, or, or where should we get going? Well, I, I can't start anywhere other than the dark satanic mills uh, <laughs> on the first page. Good, you know, nice, nice to bring that in at the beginning. <laughs> the dark satanic mills and rampant spread of epidemics through tenant housing shortened li urban lifespans dramatically. Hmm. So yes. Yeah, so the idea. I'm of, very glad we don't. Very glad we don't live in the uh, 19th century anymore. Mm-hmm. So speaking of New York, this is actually referenced here. By 1900, a typical New Yorker enjoyed seven fewer years above ground than his cousin on the farm. So that was the pressure that divided all of our uses and zoning ended up becoming uh, quite prolific. And now we have zoning codes that tell us that we need to keep housing separate from all that and uh, all that nastiness. But we know that the industry's changed. Lifestyles are different. So... Um, that gets into it's usually housing and that section talks about how because of this divided use housing has escaped our cities so what are your thoughts on housing in the, the urban context and I I find it interesting and um, really actually very astute that that uh, Jeff Speck focuses on mixed use by talking about housing first because obviously when he's talking about mixed use he's not talking about just housing he's talking about all of the things that are part of our daily living this this you know working living playing 
and recreating in a single area, but he he uses housing as the catalyst for those other things. And I think that um, with planning, there is there is often this tension of of what comes first. It's the chicken and the egg. Do we, mm-hmm. you know, what brings what? And the idea of first focusing on housing has a real place in planning thinking because it is um, without the people there it really um, you're not going to have the people who are going to shop at the shops and go to the parks and attend the schools and things like that and I I think that that's um, it makes a lot of sense to start with housing Um, because that's where a lot of trips are start right started from right from a transportation networks standpoint getting from a to b if if b is your downtown and a is your home like bringing those uses the the starting endpoints together reduces the dependence on a car and so this is this is things that are actually influenced by our zoning code so do you have any experience in in, uh, what you've studied and uh, issues on urban planning with regard to uh, this concept, Ivis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, as a planner, actually, that's the topic that I'm mostly interested in, the topic of um, housing. Mm-hmm. Um, because like um, for us that study housing, housing is the center of everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other ones might say that it's employment, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but but housing, because like housing has to be close to employment, it has to be close to um, schools, um, and also like the way that um, that uh, or like tax system is um, um, is like structured is also um, it has to do with like segregation, right? And therefore segregation of, of jobs mm-hmm. and um, segregation of uh, good schools um, available for for some people. Um, so so this idea of like warehousing um, is is located is is very um, important um, for many communities. Um, and when I talk about like communities, uh, maybe in big cities like um, like Chicago, their jobs are like very far away, right? And they live mm-hmm. like pretty much like in the fringes, um, in housing that is not of good quality. And then if we look at um, cities like um, Salt Lake City, everybody lives outside of the city, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the suburbs, and then they commute in for their jobs to the to the city center. Um, and the housing that is in the city center is of um, poor quality. Um, so it's like, I think that's um, a way to bridge that, that disconnection between like where jobs are and um, and also to like battle something like segregation, it is important that we mix the uses because it's about access, right? It's about yeah. providing um, access and having all the things that you need in a, in a neighborhood. But in order to do that, um, city planners have to invest um, in that kind um, of development and in um, in accessibility. Yeah. And so he highlights three things, politics, permitting, and pathfinding as being ways to try to open up the doors of opportunity, right? And so politics is all about what's like acceptable to the politician and the, to changing attitudes. Um, David, in your experience, you've followed Mesa closely for a long time. Do you see any hope of that, that Mesa's uh, changing attitudes with regard to the politics of Mesa? David? The silence was intentional. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 
it's not necessarily politics. I think it's also, it's it's more about attitudes and bringing together what people think and feel versus you know the 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 tropes that exist around these ideas. You know, I think about this, and you know, looking here, and it talks about it's usually housing. And you think about downtown Mesa, and, you know, it's the one thing that downtown Mesa doesn't have a lot of. We have grocery, or we have, we don't have grocery stores, but we have churches and restaurants and businesses and jobs, but we don't have housing. We actually have less housing density in downtown Mesa than we do the rest of Mesa. Yeah, we have we have um, a significant landmass devoted to housing, but not a whole lot of units well, we, to correlate with that. Well, we tore, we tore down a lot of houses. Um you know, especially poor minority neighborhoods. We we fixed that problem back in the back in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that we've been focusing on is like that housing density. Not only do we need to bring it back, but with light rail, we need to increase it. Um, you know, one of the things that wanted to touch base on, and maybe we're not there yet, but the whole idea of adding an accessory dwelling unit, which is allowable by code in Mesa. But a lot of places where it's happened has happened not necessarily legally, but especially in the minority neighborhoods that are just off of the, the main drag. And Andrea, I know that you have worked a little bit on those concepts of how we need to just allow what minority neighborhoods, people of color are doing naturally by right. Yeah, th- thanks, David. Yeah, my um, I did some research in the Escobedo neighborhood, which is just right off of Main Street, literally the main yeah. drag. Um, and, and and it has an interesting history. It's um, it's a very small area. Uh, it's one of the oldest neighborhoods in Mesa, and yet when it was first developed, it was just outside the city limits. It bordered the outside, the, and Mesa started as a single square mile. Um, back in the 18, late 1800s. And um, the, the interesting thing about that neighborhood is that not only does it have a great deal of vacant land, a huge number of, uh, like not exactly every other house or every other lot is vacant, but it's, it's very close. It has a huge amount of vacant lots. Mm. But it's, it's really because of the light rail system coming through. It's one of those neighborhoods that's, classically at risk for gentrification and there is such a um, and I really did want to get to this is there is such a tug of war between improving the quality of the neighborhood for those who have been there for a long time and um, I know that it's very enticing to developers and I think this is this is clearly why Mesa has grown outward rather than upward or in any other kind of fashion you know infill is because it's very enticing to build the large homes. They they um, they have a very high return on investment. They're much easier to build. The city gets a, a nice development fee for them. There's just not there. That's David talked about the trope or the mindset behind the kind of development that the city does and. Um, the, doing infill and doing it in a place like Escobedo neighborhood and doing it in a way that is sensitive to the, um, the, the community that has been there for a very, very long time without um, pushing them out through gentrification, that takes a completely different mindset. And um, one of the things that I found in my research and doing my interviews is that um, 
those those kinds of approaches and valuing the, the communities that are there and the kinds of lifestyles that they have is absent from their awareness. Mm. And so I found that my conversations with some of the people in the planning department and in the city council, it was the first time they were having a conversation about the Escobedo neighborhood in any in-depth way. It was the first time they even had any idea about how the community lives and what their their lifestyle preferences would be. And, and without that kind of more intimate knowledge of the downtown neighbors, mm -hmm. the, the, the people who do live close to the neighborhood, to the downtown area, um, you can't really begin to have those conversations until they become familiar, I think, with those, right. with those neighborhoods. They don't know what they have. I would like to pivot to the leadership that it takes to have a good impact, like to, to, to improve the quality of life with, without the insensitive gentrification pressures that are happening. Is there opportunities for average Masons to uh, take on a leadership role? Is it got to come from within? Is it got to be top down? How, how, how can this maybe happen? Like, I know that I've done some good research on leadership, so I'd like to, to maybe tap in to that uh, channel yeah I think that there's like opportunities for decision makers for planners but also like um, everyday like uh, people right just like working in in their communities like from um, at least at least like the the policy making um, stand uh, affordability is very important right so in mm -hmm. like in trans-oriented development um, and in like projects that are trying to de densify an area uh, again close to transit um, we um, should include affordable housing right mm -hmm. um, and inclusionary housing it is a great tool um, there's other other ways that you can do it like in terms of like allowing for um, different kinds of units so we mm -hmm. already talked about ADUs but also like including studios like you know everything has to be like the one bedroom and the two bedroom because you know that the young professionals are going to move there right yeah. and they might not have kids and all that but like by doing that you're already like structuring um, the kinds of people that are going to live um, in, in, in your neighborhood um, and then you, you know like not only mixing the uses but like mixing the incomes mm -hmm. I think that that is something that is like very important and and you can do it like in new developments right like if you have like say um, affordable housing for like 20% um, of the units in a new development but the other way is like how do you preserve preserve historic buildings and how you preserve um, buildings that have been you know built in the in the 40s that um, how you bring the quality up right mm -hmm. and I think that planners we don't think too much about um, preservation so that's like something a tool that, that, that we can use um, and give incentives um, for example, um, if you're trying to create more affordability, can you give um, subsidies to landlords? Because like a lot of people um, that might have like very small units, um, they might have, they might be struggling to be able to like rent those um, units. So it's like if you like help like small landlords, um, for instance, right, um, to have a subsidy, that's like a a a way. Um, of like fixing some of those of those problems. So all all that comes like obviously from the policy making um, mm -hmm. perspective. So when you think about um, you know the leadership and the role that people can have um, in communities, I think that a lot of this like comes in the way to um, just doing some experimentation, right? So maybe sometimes like the policies are there for ADUs, but people are not taking advantage 
of um, ADUs, right? So they're yeah. not being built. So it's like we create this ordinance and mm-hmm. then um, it's kind of like idling there because our development is not like taking it on. But maybe um, like if you are in your community and, and you mobilize and, uh, and you educate people about yeah. what are um, are these other um, ways of like having, having housing, I think that that can have a, a large um, impact. Um, the same thing, you know, like in terms of like being engaged and going to your planning commission uh, meetings and not all decisions are made, right? <laughs> um, so it's like, or especially like, um, and this, you know, I'm in the planning commission in, in Salt Lake City. And sometimes we try to tackle like, um, you know, development by development, but sometimes people don't go to when we are actually creating um, legislative matters. People don't tend to show up to those meetings. Mm. Um, so it's like how people can be more proactive and not wait until like there's something that is being proposed, like, yeah. you know, near to you that you hate. It's like the moment to do that is when in yeah. the planning commission there being like um, legislative matters in where people are thinking about policies and yeah. about what it should be done. Because it's the issues that are on people's mind in leadership that's going to arrange the agenda, right? So if it's not on people's minds, if it's not raising up to a high priority, if the people of the community aren't uh, writing, asking questions, showing up, and uh, putting this in front of people's faces, it can stay that dormant issue that's never raised to the agenda. So I think that that's that's an influence that people can have when it comes to this, uh, the first uh, segment of politics permitting and pathfinding like to influence the, the the politics of it first it needs to be on the agenda mm-hmm. and so and and these these are a few little tools that that Jeff Speck highlights and I want to back up and make sure that we're defining what an ADU is uh, an accessory dwelling unit if you're not familiar with this term it's a bit planning jargon but it's basically the little uh, granny flat in the back of your home it can be attached to your home um, and a lot of these things you know are uh, regulated by the zoning code and it says what process you have to go through in order to have that approved and sometimes they can be quite expensive too because in depending on how your sewer line is run or utilities are run uh, to that unit and through your your property it might not be easy to tap into so if there's an affordability um subsidy that the city can offer to help offset those initial costs and there's an agreement between the property owner and the city that that this is going to help bring affordability uh some kind of long-term basis then then that's a that's a really effective way to help uh, design uh, build in affordability by design because these units are relatively small and uh, can deliver uh, an increased density in the in the current development fabric that that Mesa already has. So it's a way to really kind of sensitively yeah. uh, f- bring in some density and and uh, affordability solutions. And I'd like to piggyback a little bit on what what Yves was saying about about attending those planning commission meetings, city council meetings. Um, it, it's it's really clear to me that um, when you're not familiar with those processes, if you've never been to a planning commission meeting or a city council meeting, and suddenly you're confronted with, well, now you need to take this because it's a special use permit. You need to take it to the city. You need to go and plead your case, basically. And it is an incredibly intimidating process. It feels not just like a lot of paperwork and extra fees, 
But then you ha you have to be the one to go out there and advocate. And if you've never been to one of those meetings, it's really uncomfortable, and you feel like you're the outsider, and you know they're the experts, and you're not. You're just the person, just yeah. the homeowner. And it's a it's a really great thing if you can go in advance. You get familiar with the processes. You go and observe how other people go up, and you 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 get an idea of what it's like. I think that that's really valuable, and it's a really important first step to being a more actively participating citizen or resident of your neighborhood. Yeah, I really appreciate that you're helping highlight what that process looks like and feels like for the participants in it. So that's that's incredibly important to realize. And one of the ways that Mesa can help address this is through revising the zoning code to make it not such an arduous process, right? So these are things that we can do and we couldn't put pressure on our planning uh, staff to help bring about that change. And not only just the planning staff that we have, but realizing that if this is going to be something that we want to achieve, that it also need we need the staff there to help um, with the extra assistance of your typical resident who's going to take on a project like developing an a, a, an accessory dwelling unit. Yeah, that's like, that's really true. And well, and, and it's it's way more than just the the zoning code, though. I mean, in some ways, the zoning code absolutely allows it, but the city processes and the people that are actually working the desk. Um, are, are some of the people that are some of the they're the front line and those are the people that are, are actually creating a lot of these issues. I work with a lot of people that in their entire lifetime may only do one project. They will build one business. They will build one thing in their house or they will build, uh, you know, open a new restaurant, you know, once. And every time these people go to uh, the city, the counter to get a permit or to try and figure out how this works, and this isn't just true of Mesa, this is in other communities in the valley where I've worked, the counter is used to people that know what they're doing, working with architects and engineers and people that have done this hundreds of times. But most small business owners or uh residents that are trying to do something on their own have none of this experience and they this is where we get almost all of our complaints as a community that you come in and the people working behind the counter the staff that's there every day they're used to this they know what this looks like and they know what to expect from most of their applicants yeah. David you're but really then, highlighting something that that um, a little bit of a shameless plug for our book it's a new planning advisory service report and it's awesome. talking about planning with and for racially and ethically uh, diverse communities. And we have an entire section on policy and various ways that uh, this is more oriented towards planners, but it's 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 um, ideas about how planners can create, uh, the things that planners can do to um, encourage and support greater diversity in their communities. And one of the things that is really strongly highlighted is the idea of reducing some of those uh, process barriers, those regulatory barriers, the, the application barriers, the cost barriers, because one of the things that happens is when you do have those barriers, what you do is you have people who say, screw it, I'm not going to do this, it's too much work, I'm gonna do it incrementally when it's dark and behind the closed doors, and then they're, they're you know, the jargon is non-conforming, but what that really means is they may not meet codes and safety standards, and they're substandard housing, and the people who really pay the price are the people who occupy that and are living in either fire hazards or in some kind of an environmental hazard. And uh, what, what we're really encouraging in our book is that planners think about this and lower those barriers so that people do go through the permitting process more 
and create more housing that is that is conforming to the regulations because those are safety standards. It's not just right. about controlling what you do, but about meeting certain basic safety. And standards. not only is that a not a, a cost for the Absolutely. people who are living there. That's an excellent point. It's not just the cost of the folks that are living there, but it's also a cost of the city because the city is the one that's that's saying that they're going to provide a level of service for safety, fire, police protection, right? So it, it, with with them going outside the system and them not even maybe uh, registering on on fire deployment, right? If the fire uh, department gets called and there's not even uh, in their system that there's an additional unit in the rear, in the back of the yard, like right? This is this is a, a huge safety concern for uh, our front lines of, of public safety. So um, yeah, absolutely. I I think that this a lot of this comes, in my opinion, from the whole idea of departmental cost recovery. The entire idea that a city department has to charge enough fees to cover its own expenses, its own departmental expenses, which to me is the opposite of how government should option or should work. Like the people that are working in planning, the people who are working in developmental services, absolutely they should be charging fees and things like that to try and recoup this so it's not all on sales tax. But, you know, having fees that are a third of the cost of your project or the cost yeah. of your project, why would I do that? What What's the incentive to me to do that other than you're going to come after me and with some sort of code enforcement action? I want to highlight and, that, that this is just a microcosm of the effect that we're having where the residents don't have as much uh, savviness or, or pull um, to get a sweet deal because we know that a, a larger developer could put together a fiscal impact analysis that shows that their long-term uh, out, uh, benefits are going to be worth the, the lack of fees up front or certain uh, subsidies up front. So, like, but we know that there's a value to allowing for uh, accessory dwelling units in the rear yard, but we don't uh, necessarily uh, capture that in our in our planning processes and, and, and the permits that are coming through and what people are trying to do. But in the interest of time, I would like to move the conversation into uh, the topic of, of Jeff Speck's uh, next section titled Invisible... Well, before we go there... Uh, I... You're not allowing me to keep pace. All right, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm usually the timekeeper, but in this <laughs> section, I really wanted to talk about... They talked about Lowell, Massachusetts, and how mm -hmm. the downtown had 1,500 units or so, or 1,700 units of housing, and almost 79% were subsidized or income restricted. Yep. And I wanted to compare that to downtown Mesa. So the original square mile of downtown Mesa has something around 1,500 units left that haven't been torn down. Less than 100 of those units are income restricted. They're somewhere around that number. Mm -hmm. And so people think of downtown Mesa as like, oh, we have all this affordable housing. But if you're looking in the downtown area, almost none of the housing is income restricted. Some of it's affordable because it's old and not fixed up. And some of it is very expensive. But the idea that we have a lot of income-restricted housing in downtown is not true, which goes back to the whole idea of, you know, we have to base our policies on truth. Um, and then if you step out another mile and we have maybe 10,000 units of housing, less than 500 of those units are income-restricted. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, we, we talk about, oh, we have too much affordable housing, and then you compare it to a place like Lowell that had 80% affordable housing, and we have less than 1% income-restricted housing, and we're, we're the ones that are flailing about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That can definitely help uh, set the agenda uh, appropriately, so that's good good data. Do you have anything to add? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that we have to like think long term. I think that sometimes when we look at downtowns, that there's like old housing stock and we're trying to develop new housing, which is usually more expensive. Yeah, there's this tendency to say, you know, people can live in this housing, even though it's like of poor quality. Um, but then what about the, the future, right? Because like we, we can see that many places are changing and they're changing um, rapidly. And um, that uh, affordable housing might be there today, um, but it might not be there tomorrow, right? So it's like with like, um, we, as planners, we have to think about this like um, long-term and being able to um, obviously fix up some of the housing that exists there, but also build um, new affordable housing with restrictions too, right? Like if you're using um, low income, like housing tax credits, like can we get like for, for that for longer? How can we assure that affordable housing will be there like for 20 years down the road um, or even more? Trust funds, things like that. So that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Okay, so... And, this... and then I do also want to point out, Jeff Speck talks about inclusionary housing and inclusionary zoning. And the uh, state of Arizona, our state legislature, preempted all of our local uh, jurisdictions from doing anything like that. Yeah. So inclusionary housing is now de facto illegal in the state of Arizona. That's true, yeah. It's just one less tool in the tool chest to uh, address this issue. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so definitely take, uh, the state could do uh, our cities and our planners uh, a great service by taking off the shackles uh, from some of our tools. Um, so let, let us take a good hard look at our context, present the data, present uh, the uh, a feasible way forward, and allow our decision makers locally to decide whether or not inclusionary zoning is a, uh, a useful tool or not, not be decided so top down. So it's, it's interesting how local control is the mantra until the control is theirs to be t- to, to give or take. So, all right, are we ready to move into invisible ha- affordability? All right, I'll take that as a yes. Invisible affordability. So. I thought that's what we were talking about. You bet. You told me no, we're not ready for that, and you backed this up. But so you were you were into inclusionary zoning. We're so talking that, about we're, inclusionary we're there. zoning and granny plaza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. But um, I did just <laughs> want to highlight that that is that is a, a section within the book that's definitely worth a read and definitely highlights some of the things that we're talking about here. Um, so yeah, you're skipping all over the place, but that's okay. We'll forgive you, David. Um, <laughs> it's only four pages. Okay. Um, yeah. Nimbyism. Is this is this going to be uh, a problem for uh, for Mesa? Is uh, into uh, allowing for uh, the ADUs and inclusionary zoning, or I guess not inclusionary zoning since we can't use that. Isn't that why Mesa exists? It's kind of a. Uh, it's it's a it's a bedroom community of Phoenix itself. It is, it is the home of. We don't have nimbies. We have what's called bananas. 
build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. <laughs> it is what Mesa is going for. Yeah. We don't have not in my backyard. We have my backyard's full. We have one. Too many. Mm-hmm. I've actually heard my backyard is full from a resident. Wow. That's, 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 yeah. a, that's a fun quote. Um, yeah. So, obviously, that, if there's people who would feel differently, they need to show up and let their voices be heard, right? Like, this is not something that we're going to uh, just say, oh, chalk it up. There's, like, nothing to be gained here. No, there's plenty to be gained here. It's a classic dilemma of, of the cities in the West in that we have a ton of space. We have um, automobiles that um, are fueled by affordable gas, and we've got roads that get wider and wider and wider, um, you know, um, and we have no incentive to do the infill. We have uh, no incentive to um, increase density so that we can um, increase bus use. We have the light rail, but light rail is, is by and large, it's going to be a choice. Uh, mode of transportation and not for the transit dependent because it's a pretty expensive mode of transportation and well, it, the, major, the majority of all light rail riders get to light rail by bus yeah but if, so if so, you don't have bus ridership you don't have light rail ridership and changing the face of downtown Mesa could could swing that like there's a chance to influence the what ridership on the light rail actually looks like and if you're giving people uh, an option to live in in downtown Mesa and forego the expense of owning a car in lieu of their transit options and in lieu of, because they have so many uh, destinations that they can reach by foot by bike by transit in a downtown setting then all of a sudden that's a game changer well, absolutely. If there is an argument for any one place in Mesa having density, it's one bringing downtown Mesa up to the density of the rest of the city, but then bringing it up to the level of density that will support rail, support a grocery store, will support business. Yeah, it, and so we're talking density now, and that gets to be a really scary word for people. But we can get, we can reach thirty. Bringing people together in community. Yeah, we can reach 30 <laughs> units per acre, uh, which is a density measure, uh, without the scary giant uh, apartment complex. Like that's actually achievable. Yeah, we would hate to be small like footprints. Central areas of Paris or downtown London or Madrid, you know, cities like that that's really falling apart. There's a great book, and I'm trying to think of her last name. It's called Visualizing Density, and it's mm-hmm. done by Julie Campanoli oh, or something like this. Campanoli. Campanoli, Campanoli and, yeah. and it's published by the uh, Lincoln Institute for Land um, mm-hmm. Policy. And it's it's a, a really, really well-done book that um, it's not information that a lot of urban planners aren't familiar with but what it is it's it's a wonderful way of showing just anybody um, everybody needs to see this because it, it it says it shows how the different ways in which you achieve density so sometimes it might you, you can get the same density out of a high-rise tower as you can mid-size and lower three and four story buildings that are a little bit spread out and you could still get tremendous amount of, of people there and it's very comfortable 
living for a lot of people. Um, and one of the things that a lot of people find is when they live in a, in a kind of that comfortable mid-level mid density, that they really like actually knowing their neighbors. They, um, this is kind of a forgotten practice in the West, it seems. And then when you live in that, you, yeah, absolutely. you suddenly see your neighbor face to face. It's a really nice thing. And, and um, we're kind of, we've gotten away from that in the West quite a bit. Um, but she does yeah, a great we, job. Yeah, we absolutely live in the area era of driving into your carport or driving into your garage, closing it and going and turning on TV mm -hmm. and not talking with our neighbor because we don't need to. Right, not even using the front door. It's, it's um, really remarkable. So do we have anything to add to the economic development uh, 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 angle uh, that he brings up later in this section? Too many cities still think that economic development can occur in a vacuum of golf and giveaways, ignoring the fact that such victories are increasingly rare and don't always last. So here it is. Yeah, like it's an absolute race to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to add, like, because as I was thinking about this conversation on, on density, right? Um, and I am coming originally from Puerto Rico, and there's places that you have, like, your, your single family home, but they have, like, a business attached to the home, and this is, like, pretty normal. People who have, like, two-story homes or something in the back, and um, it really contributes a lot to the neighborhood. So otherwise, it might look like a suburb, but there's, like, plazas, there's, like, um, places for people to be, and um, I think that, that here in the U.S., we could think about um, yeah. places of lower density with, like, economic development, right? Sure. In many places, it will be, um, again, like a, a side business that, that people have. There's a lot of, like, single, mother or, or single mothers or, or people who don't work that, you know, that could... could could be um, a home, like having a little business. Um, sometimes it's, you know, it's good training for the kids, I will yeah. say, at times. <laughs> but that's the way, you know, that um, a lot of, con a lot of uh, uh, cities and countries function. And, and in terms of economic development, I think that is a great strategy just to, like, have small businesses that contribute to the vitality of, um, of neighborhoods. For sure, and so that's a great point. I think you're absolutely right. The neighborhood scale economic development ambitions uh, are often overshadowed or, or swept away to the side in order to land the big headlines, right? The the landing of the Apple uh, uh, projects, but they're they're no less important. There's certainly a way to open up opportunities for people to dive in and do something for themselves. And you, you if you make people uh, capable of being their best champion, then you're going to be able to to spread uh, that that opportunity much. Uh, wider and much deeper than you would, uh, d depending on a, a staff uh, and an economic uh, development uh, operation. As I the, the quote that the smart cities hire a director of planning and development who is first charged with the creating a city where people want to be. You know, the idea that, that parks and playgrounds and supermarkets and farmers markets and cafes, restaurants and schools are more important for the overall economic development and the overall health of the community than there is about landing the newest 200 uh, person employer. Yeah. Okay, again, in the interest of time, we should probably move on to parking. 
Step three, get yeah. the parking right. And of course, we cannot have a conversation about parking without the prophet of parking, Donald Shoup. Uh, the shoot where it is. <laughs> the, ma- the mastermind behind everything parking analysis from UCLA, Mr. Donald Shoup, or Dr. Donald Shoup, excuse me. Um, so, yeah, uh, so I've, I uh, was originally introduced to Donald Shoup through uh, a Freakonomics podcast. The, there is no such thing as free parking. And uh, it's definitely a good listen, fun listen. If uh, you're interested, if you just haven't got enough of talking about parking after listening to this, um, definitely look that up. But um, so, what comes to mind first when you think about uh, this issue of getting parking right? Who's, who wants to jump in? The entire idea that downtowns can't can't out suburbia suburbia. <laughs> the idea that we tear down buildings to build parking, and all we do is just try and look just like suburbia. And all we're doing is making ourselves more fragile. Our economy is more fragile. You know, the suburbs and the strip malls are dying. Yep. And we're, we're tearing it down. Like, downtowns, like downtown Mesa, can't compete with the suburbs because we're not. Yeah. And as soon as we do, we make ourselves more fragile. That's a great word. Fragile is a great word to describe the suburban model and your downtown is your opportunity to counteract that fragility with something that's truly vibrant, truly resilient and uh, gives people a lot of options uh, to, to live their life differently than they could in the suburbs. Well, I, I think the, um, the term fragility is it, it, it's, um, maybe a little bit hard for people to understand where that fragility comes from, but if you think about monocrops, for example, um, these um, large agricultural parcels that are, are eight, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of acres of a single crop, you get any kind of a bug or you get any kind of a fungus or anything that, that makes, um, that, that somehow damages that crop, all of it is is lost. All of it becomes um, vulnerable to that one thing. And so um, I think the kind of fragility that this you guys are referring to really is that vulnerability that comes from doing too much of any one thing, um, too reliant on any one kind of development or any one, one kind of um, urban form. Yeah. And um, the thing about, I, I think about the downtown that I grew up in, it's, it even talks about Palo Alto, but the Palo Alto that I grew up in <laughs> is um, was a, a small little area, and there were these little tiny pocket parking lots, and this was long before I was even old enough to drive, and I could walk to downtown from the home I grew up in, and I remember walking by these little parking lots, and maybe they had 20 or 30 spots, and usually the older citizens parked in there, the older residents, and they and and there was some street parking that people used, and you know people came and went, and it was one lane wide, one one lane in each direction, and um, it was a really vibrant downtown, and um, and I think when you when you say there's no parking downtown, I think that freaks people out for one thing. I think, um, but I also think that 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 the idea is not to have all or nothing. I think it's to have these 
it's sort of the acupuncture parking lot, I don't yeah. know, where um, and I'm starting to have issues with walking long distances. And so if um, when we when we get into that mode of thinking it has to be all or nothing, and, and right now we've gone all to free parking, all to surface parking lots, all to sort of giving way to the automobile, we need to find some kind of balance there to be less fragile, less vulnerable. Yeah, I think that um, surface uh, parkings are great opportunities because, you know, you, if you don't want to demolish, yeah. <laughs> again, like um, a, a housing that is there, right? And and, and sometimes, you know, um, being able to like buy property, like little property by little property by little property is very hard um, as a developer, right? So there's like, um, in terms of politics, it's like um, uh, when you have to deal with people, it's very hard. But if you, like, it's something that ha has been happening a lot in Salt Lake, Salt Lake now is to uh, find these like old choppy malls right that it has like this giant um, parking that it looks like Walmart you know and yeah, um, it was another time of like you know thinking at least of building things like this inside of like um, Salt Lake City so a lot of these businesses have been going or out of business probably because of Walmart right <laughs> but um, but the idea is like okay so how we like um, take these like shopping malls and this all this surface parking that it had and to make them into hotels and make them into housing and other kinds of development so I we have to start thinking about surface parking as um as opportunities for like new development um again because I think it's like easier to obtain and um it's it's, it's almost like vacant lots right giant vacant lots mm -hmm. that get in the way of people walking and uh, another way that uh, that um um that these developments are happening it's just like thinking now that we have like this like massive piece of um land that is a parking lot thinking about um how you create um mid blocks um ways for people to actually have connections and actually have like um, just like bike ways and like walkways and, and different ways to uh, to move around. So I think that again, they represent an opportunity with or a new way of, of, of thinking. Um, so, so that's one point. And the other point is that um, something I find a lot in the in the planning commission is that yes, we have way too much parking in in on downtown uh, Salt Lake City. Um, but um, the the I think that part of the problem is like if you listen to people and um, what what is their problem is that sometimes they don't cannot find the parking. Um, so we have have started this like new initiative of like hey maybe we we should make our signage um, a little better right um in, or downtown to show people where where parking is, is at because there's too much parking it's just that people if there's not clear ev evidence right and they don't mm -hmm. see it they feel like it's not there when it is yeah. so it's like how we like, through wayfinding uh do a better job of showing people where the parking is yeah yeah we have the exact same issue downtown mesa we have 5,000 parking spaces in, along Main Street in the downtown square mile. Uh, we have a parking utilization rate somewhere between 20 and 30% um, of that total amount. And then people are like, there's nowhere to park. Well, there is. We need better signage or just knowing that, oh, you can just go behind that building and there's lots of easy parking. Right. I know one of the things that that um, 
is part of this chapter and it's an important thing to understand is the cost of of parking and um and that's you know just the cost of building a surface parking parking space is about four thousand dollars we know what the numbers are we know that going below grade is about forty thousand dollars per parking space and then as parking structure is anywhere twenty to thirty thousand dollars per parking space phenomenal cost um, one of the challenges though is that we have those parking spaces there and so it's not just a matter of is the city going to invest in this? The city has invested in this. And so I think Eva's got a really good point about how do you then take this poorly invested um, fund, how do you take these poorly invested funds and make some kind of opportunity out of them? And the, the other part to think about is that parking lots do not have to be always a parking spot um there are there's those classic parking day mm -hmm. events parklets. um parklets um people do a lot of times now they do farmers markets on parking lots you can have um special mm -hmm. events and festivals there um so there are a lot of ways to use those and you can even break up part of it can stay a parking lot part of it can stay something else I know that in Portland they've they've used um, the park some parking in, inner city downtown parking uh, lots to so-called temporary food pods yeah. and so they had a lot of um, food trailers come up but they're actually relatively permanent um, they get away with it because they're all on wheels it's one of the deals is they have to be on wheels and they have to be able to be removed but they've been so incredibly successful that they're essentially for all intents and purposes they are permanent and they have enlivened the downtown incredibly and it's it's a way to experiment with different uses without making the commitment and the space is there and try something and that brings up a good point because like david said there's not really a good uh grocery market in downtown Mesa and so one thing that I learned in Yuma is that they've they've found a successful program where they've converted a school bus into a mobile uh, fresh produce uh, you know venue and so that, I mean like it's those kind of like innovative like ways to reutilize something and and try to gain like David just said like the utilization rate at 30 percent that means that we have 70 percent capacity that's going unused at 70 percent of our parking lots are opportunities to do something else so to allow for food trucks yeah. or, or opportunities like that to to capitalize on that capacity that's totally just an opportunity waiting to happen so we just need a program we need somebody brave enough to imagine something the reuse of that space we, we just listened uh, the three of us here in New York we just listened to the closing keynote speaker and he highlighted some examples of people um, proposing through these things that would would that uh, your typical politician or planning bureaucrat wouldn't just never think of and they seem really risky and because they were they were one of the one of the key um, keys to the success was that they were all very low cost they were risky but they were very low cost mm -hmm. too and so um, they were ways to increase connection to the place, uh, increase um, the kind of attention people yeah. gave to certain places. They were generally yeah. downtown focused and it was um, 
it was it was fascinating. I don't know yeah. if you remember the name of the who was it that gave the presentation. I I, I don't know, but I will be sharing all of this on Facebook. I, yeah. I took notes throughout the keynote, and there was great programs like the Mice on Main. Yes. I thought that was incredible. Like these little uh, brass mice that become like the scavenger hunt for anybody who comes downtown, and so it's just a way to have fun, and you don't even need money to do something like that. And I think that was a high school student who yeah. proposed that. It was yeah. just remarkable. He said twelve hundred dollars. The they cast all these brass mice and like glued them or secured them in and around these uh, cool little spots around downtown. Some were obvious, some were less obvious, and it just the mix of finding the mice throughout Main Street was just a fun attraction. Yeah, I wanted to um, make um, a comment, I guess, that tying together the conversation about nimbism and about increasing density with also thinking about um, parking. I feel that a lot of people um, oppose, like, uh, again, like um, uh, a lot of housing or like um, just like uh, multifamily and even because of the parking, like sometimes when, well, well, now in the in some, some of the ordinances, like in the trans-oriented development, you will have um, that you only have to provide like one parking spot um, per unit, mm -hmm. right? And that's like pretty normal, and it's you know it's a great tool that um, I don't know how it's in Mesa, but like in, in most cities, right? This is like this is like um, pretty common, and um, it's something that is celebrated among planners, right? Because like we feel like it limits. Um, it limits parking um, and therefore driving and then we do it in a space that um, it has like uh, the potential to uh, you get around um, with transit um, but you know a lot of people um, say well you know not people don't have only like one car right they have two cars if it's like um, a couple and um, and you have to multiply that and then if you people will park on the street right and it's hard to find parking on the street so this is like all this like uh, nimbism uh, against that and not only through like housing um, but also like even businesses because like um, there's like many we in some places we are not like really requiring uh, for businesses to have like parking so the idea is that you will have like 30 extra people right like potentially 30 extra cars like parking around um, uh, a neighborhood and, and so on so I think that we have to think better about um, well first of all how to um, show people that um, some 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 ways right to getting around that I think that shared parking is like something yeah. that it makes a lot of sense I don't think that um, that we plan ahead in, in order to be able to do that like for example um, thinking about institutions like uh, like a hospital or or a school um, or just places that you can have like parking like at the office office hours right but when right. people come back from the office and their home they actually use those um, spaces right. so so I think that that's yeah. you know thinking ahead we have to think about like how to share um, parking in a yeah. way that that is um, is smart. Yeah, all, all that takes is coordination between the uses, right? We understand what users are happening and when they have visitors and when they are going to have a demand for parking. So if uh, this uh, user A has early demand for parking and user B has uh, demand for parking later in the day, then A plus B should not be the, you know, equal C, the, 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 the combination of those two uh, quantities being added together, but instead shared. So that's how we can help yeah. reduce the amount of uh, parking that ends up eating up space in our downtowns. 
Are you guys familiar with, I mean, that all goes to talk about how overbuilt and how much money is wasted on too much parking. Are you guys familiar with the Black Friday parking count? Nope. Mm-mm. So uh, nationwide, it's this, uh, it's this idea that you go on Black Friday when stores are having their most shopping people shopping there, and you take a picture of the parking lot to show how overparked the Walmart is and the Target and you know all of the places that on the most impressive shopping day of the year, mm-hmm. how many empty spaces there are. Yes. Which really ties in with that idea of the Palo Alto talking about, you know, we have these regulations that require too much parking, which is wasted money in the economy. And uh, Palo Alto is allowing up to 50% of area to be kept as a natural landscape reserve to be mm. converted to parking. If and necessary. So wow. Not a single one of those parking reserves has ever been converted back to parking. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's a really good point, David. I think you know when you look at the costs, um, um, those are already sunk costs. Um, the question is, is how do we get any kind of return of investment on what's already been built, and how do we? I, I think the key to that is looking at at efficiency of use, and the idea uh, that you're just talking about um, of shrinking those parking lots in some way so that the spaces that are there get used at a more that they're more um, they're they have higher intensity of use meaning that that spot is occupied by a car more hours within a 24-hour cycle than it was before that's the intensity we're talking about and um, mm-hmm. it, one way to get a higher intensity is to shrink the number of parking spots to the point where a parking spot is hardly ever vacant. That, that's the idea where you have such high efficiency where you can figure out that a spot just doesn't ever need to be empty. Um, and that will reduce the number of other parking spaces that are needed. Um, and so there, yeah, there are absolutely. so many creative ways. And I think... I think for me, I I'm, was really fascinated by the kinds of um, suggestions that were in today's um, presentation. But what it speaks to most of all to me is the idea that people have great ideas. And how do we encourage people to speak up? Say, tell us what those great ideas are. So many people think, oh, no one will ever care about this. This is just a crazy idea. Uh, they're fantastic ideas. All kinds of people have great ideas, whether they're kids or the elder, anyone. Yeah, what really resonated with me out of that uh, presentation, the, the ending keynote, was that people love their city, and if you allow them to engage in that love, that love just grows deeper. Those roots just grow deeper and stronger, and they really latch on to this opportunity to get involved in their community in creative ways. And if we're not telling people, no, we don't have a program for that, no, we don't have a way to, to manage that risk, then we're, we're all, we are opening up the door to uh, to 
endless possibilities of creative ideas and deeper roots. Right. Yeah. I think the message to um, to citizens and to to people who live and love their cities is is speak up, go right. ahead and and voice those ideas. But to planners, the message was to stop saying no. Yeah. Allow for them to push at those margins. And, <laughs> and speaking at the margins, this uh, this concept of induced uh, parking. Uh, the you know like so we talked about induced. Uh, car traffic on this uh, podcast in previous episodes. And so the other flip side of that is that once you're finished with your car drive, your drive, you have to find a place to store your car for a while. You spend eight hours in a building. So um, the, the end. <laughs> the end. Hey, Enrique Pengalosa, uh, I, I saw him at the keynote somewhere, and he said, I don't tell you where to put your underwear, so why do you ask, you don't ask me where I should be putting your underwear, why are you asking me where to put your car? Both <laughs> private property, why do I care as a government where you put your private property? <laughs> and I was like, what? And, and then I thought about it. That's a radically new perspective, okay. <laughs> well, so why are, why are we inducing people to wear underwear? <laughs> <laughs> so, no. So the the idea of induced demand, I think, is really important. It also uh, gets at a, a why 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 is the government subsidizing drawers for your underwear? Why is the government? <laughs> yes. Why are people? Why are the the people that pay taxes and the poor that pay the most of their their income subsidizing everyone else's private property storage, mm-hmm. their storage unit for their sixty thousand dollar hunk yes. of metal? Yes, you must have four drawers for your underwear. Therefore, you can have as much underwear as you want. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. So, induced induced parking also gets at uh, the because so just to back up for any listeners uh, who aren't familiar with how zoning codes impact parking uh, regulations is that typical your typical zoning code in any American city is going to have parking regulations and that means parking minimums more likely uh, some uh, municipalities have wisened up and actually created parking maximums to go along with that so it doesn't get to the point of craziness like with a Walmart who doesn't even care what your parking minimums are because they're going to well exceed that. But now cities have kind of flexed a little bit of muscle to make sure that they don't uh, go too crazy with the amount of asphalt out in front of the building. But um, Yeah. One of my questions I had as I was reading that section was, has the city ever gone back and checked? Are those parking numbers? When was the last time a city went and actually like did a parking inventory on all of the millions of dollars that were invested by people in building these parking lots and said, hey, was, does our regulation work? Or are we unfairly taxing new development by forcing them to build all this parking that we we all know is never used? I mean, just compare, compare Trader Joe's and Target, the last time you drove to one of those places. I can't imagine the last time I was at a Target that the parking lot wasn't at least 50% empty. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to park within 20 spots of the front door. Mm-hmm. And then Trader Joe's, where I can't remember the last time I've been where the parking lot wasn't 80 or 90% full, but I was still able to park fairly close to the store. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like that idea of that um, that Black Friday count because, you know, for, for example, the Audubon Society, they have a yearly bird count, right? And so 
this sounds a little bit like um, a little bit like that. It would be would definitely be a way of engaging the community in becoming more aware of the parking and more aware of how much of that parking is really needed because um, I do think that when um, communities see their own space and their own tax dollars being wasted or sitting idly and parking lots are generally pretty ugly um, nobody really loves them and it would be really interesting to engage an entire community in a Black Friday count of parking spaces, much like you do engaging the, uh, a community in, in a bird count. Um, and I, it could be a really interesting exercise because it would, you could, you could have a very festival kind of atmosphere and generate a lot of ideas about how are all the different ways you could use parking spaces. Um, kind of like those those parking day yeah. things um, where, yeah. you, where you create a little mini park. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think that the whole idea of um, of the, the the pushback has to come from the bottom up. it's it's a it's part of the development process. We've come it's become a very normalized part of practice now for both developers and planners and we have these cookie cutter numbers and we we know that there's a certain kind of safety and a cushion built into those numbers and um, and I think that um, in order to to shift the conversation to shift the culture of planners and developers you've got to have some kind of um, I think I think having the community really push back yeah, and say hey, this is, these are our tax dollars and they're going to waste. Yeah, and I think that, that that's well, such a rarity. Well, not even tax dollars. It's the, it's the dollars that could be invested by these private yeah. organizations that, in a better-looking building or more things or things like that that get dumped in asphalt and empty land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's certainly a hidden cost that gets passed on even. So the the cost of parking is not free. And so the, if a developer or somebody has to pay for the installation of that parking lot, that cost of that parking lot then gets passed on in the goods and services that are provided by the business who is responsible for paying the cost of their their rent or or if they're the developer owner, uh, then they, they paid those, those costs up front. But those costs have to be recouped. And the unfortunate uh, aspect of that is that not everybody drives and not everybody's using a parking space so it's most likely those who have foregone the expense of having a car who are still burdened uh, cost burdened by that that good or service um, you know being passed on to them so it's a, it's almost a regressive tax uh, in a lot of cases well, because it's those that absolutely who, I mean our roads and such are paid by people's sales taxes and income taxes are the, the cost of our roads and infrastructure that most people don't use is paid for by most people. And we know that the cost of private parking is borne by everyone who shops at any store, whether you use it or not. 
So it's about getting the part, the cost of parking right, and so parking meters are obviously one tool, and there's smartphone apps and everything. But I wanted to jump in also and fill in. The, uh, speaking of technology, you're talking about uh, measuring demand or measuring how many people are actually using parking, and you're finding now that when you map uh, a destination on, on Google uh, Maps, that it'll also tell you like the parking availability uh, in your destination a lot of times. So I think that uh, this the these technologies they talk about uh, a pilot program in San Francisco in the book too but um, the, these technologies are going to help fill in the, that data gap and us uh, being able to measure whether or not our regulations are uh, properly uh, um, you know uh, enforcing the right counts and and so if if, yeah. if, we, if we can tap into that yeah, one of the data, last things that right? I wanted to mention before I have to get off the, the phone is just the whole idea of wasted time. Um, in the book, they were talking about how in one city, it was the average time it took you to find parking was 6.1 minutes, and it was reduced to one minute. And that entire idea that you're just wasting your time, you're wasting gas, you're adding pollutants to the air as you're circling and circling. I think Donald Shoup's book actually talks about, like, the majority of traffic is actually people looking for cars, looking for places to yes. park in central areas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's stunning how inefficient this all is. But, oh, yeah, I want to encourage you guys to continue chatting. I have to get off the phone, but um, enjoy New York. Enjoy the rest of the planning mm -hmm. conference. I'm really jealous I'm not there. The weather here in Tempe is beautiful, Great. but... Uh, but it's not as uh, fun as it is exploring a new place. All right. Well, thanks yeah. for joining us, David. I think, yeah, Thank we're you. ready to nice wrap to up here as well. Uh, our, our special guests have been kind enough to devote their time uh, to, to bring in a, their uh, interests and their knowledge to our podcast. So I just want to thank them uh, for being part of this. And um, so... Um, is there any uh, final thoughts? I think this is really a, a fantastic thing you're doing. I think we need to leverage all of the different ways of engaging with each other in thinking about our cities, thinking about the places we live, work, play, recreate. And I think that everybody has something to contribute. And so I think that these podcasts are uh, just a great way to to just tap into that and and, um, and nudge people to, to get involved. Mm -hmm. So I, th I thank you for, for inviting me here. Yeah, again, um, thank you for, for this great invitation. I just wanted to say that, um, you know, sometimes it's about, about culture and, like, changing our, our ways, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, change is, like, very, very hard. Like, as humans being, we are, mm -hmm. like, very resistant um, toward change. And there's a lot of, like, planning tools and there's a lot of, like, um, you know, data, right, of like um, how we can have like uh, a higher quality of life if we incorporate some of the things that we talked about um, today. But there's also a lot of resistance um, from from us, right, and yeah. willing to, okay, let's let's walk, let's bike <laughs> instead of like taking the car. Yeah. Um, so so it, it goes both ways. It's like the built environment, but like we also have to like um, being able to advocate and, and change some of the of some of our own uh, practices yeah. in the everyday life. So that's a, definitely a way to start. 
And then the other way is like, you know, talk to your policymakers because things have to actually change in the physical world. Yep, yep. It's not, mm. There's no doubt that getting involved and speaking your mind can make a difference. So um, uh, hopefully that we've highlighted some things that people can tap into. And uh, we encourage uh, everybody to do that. And that's why we're here. And uh, thank you, everybody who's listening. And uh, I'll let you, David's closing remarks uh, come later. So thanks, David. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was it from New York City, discussing pages 105 through 138 in Walkable City. Step two, mix the uses and getting the parking right. Don't forget to join us online on Facebook and Tumblr at Main Street Mesa to keep the conversation going. And we'll join you next time for step four, let the transit work. Our theme music is written by Philip Buckman, performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees, and produced and recorded by David Wirsch. If cities required restaurants to offer a free dessert with each dinner, the price of every dinner would soon increase to include the cost of dessert. To ensure that restaurants didn't skimp on the size of their required desserts, cities would have to set precise minimum calorie requirements. Some diners would pay for the desserts they didn't eat, and others would eat sugary desserts they wouldn't have ordered had they paid for them separately. The consequences would undoubtedly include the epidemic of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. A few food-conscious cities like New York and San Francisco might prohibit free desserts, but most cities would continue to require them. Many people would get angry at even the thought of paying for the desserts they had eaten for free for so long. Thank you.